Your bulletin says that I'm going to be preaching from Revelation 21, 22 through 27, and that was my intention. However, as I kept looking at the text, it just kept expanding out, so we're going to go a little farther than that, but I'll let you know that in a moment. Just to kind of give you a little update, our usual practice here is verse-by-verse exposition through books of the Bible. That is our normal practice. We've gone through together since I've been at Grace in the last six and a half years, Colossians, Philippians, Revelation, Philemon, the entire Gospel of Mark, entire, uh, I almost said Gospel of Isaiah, but it really is the Gospel of Isaiah, uh, First and Second Thessalonians, Ruth, and most of the Gospel of John, which we will pick up shortly. But we have taken some time, all the way since last November, to be extremely intentional in our shepherding. And we shepherded, first of all, in a series that, that we called Our Gift to Jesus, which is to present to him a church that's worthy, that's obedient, that's doing the things that it's supposed to do. And so we spent time on ecclesiology, on the study of the church, our gift to Jesus. It's all we have to give him. And then we transitioned into our Joyful Generosity series to look at a theology of giving, and why we give, and and this has all been part of us embarking on quite a journey here, a journey to try to raise in the vicinity of 800000 to a $1 million to just begin our quest to build a facility which will be a tool in the hands of the Lord for His glory. And I won't go into all of the details as to why we're doing this. We've done that numbers of times before. But I, I deeply hope that you heard last week's message on giving because of God's glory And we made, I believe, a very strong case that God has always been worshipped in a sacred space, a place which mankind meets with God. And so I hope that you, you heard that, but we've been building a theology of giving. We started off understanding that we give because of God's ownership, that you don't own anything. You are a slave of Christ. You don't own the clothes on your back, much less the money in your bank or the house you live in. We talked about giving because of God's grace, that we will never outgive Christ, that he has given so lavishly and freely to us that all we can do is to give back as much as we can. We talked about giving because of God's provision, that nobody, no Christian has ever starved to death, arrived in heaven, and had the Lord say, if you hadn't supported the building campaign, you'd still be alive today. He always provides. We talked about giving because of God's church, that the church is like any other institution. You get what you pay for. If you highly value the preached word of God, if you highly value the exposited scriptures, if you highly value the sanctification and the growth of your own soul, then you give to that. We talked about giving because of God's reward. God is so generous. He's like a father who says, Child, here's a penny. Do something good with it. And when you do, I'll give you a million dollars as a reward. He's so, so kind. And we talked about giving because of God's glory. That mankind, all the way going back to the Garden of Eden, has always had a sacred space and has invested in that. Well, today on Commitment Sunday, I'd like to talk to you about the final reason we give We give because of God's kingdom. If you've been at Grace Bible Church for longer than a month, you have heard us speak of the kingdom of God. That is the theme of the Bible. We give because of God's kingdom. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Now, Revelation 21 is the first chapter in the Bible since Genesis 2, which isn't tainted by sin. 
It's like you've been underwater for over 1,100 chapters of Scripture and you finally come up for a breath. All of the elect have been brought into the kingdom. Christ has established his kingdom on earth after the great tribulation, after a thousand years of an age better than this one, but not yet the final state. Big, epic, cosmic things are happening now. Satan and his followers, angelic and human followers, will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire. And at this judgment, Revelation 20, verse 11 says that the earth and sky fled away from his presence. In other words, Revelation 20 says there is literally no place for the unsaved to run. There's no place to go. It it seems that after the great judgment of the rebellious, this will take place rather after the melting down of the known creation. And after this judgment in which the reprobate of all realms, spiritual and physical, are finally condemned, we have this glorious scene now of the future of all who have placed their faith in Christ. And we begin in Revelation 21, and we will read through Revelation 22, verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. 
The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, in this passage we get incredibly valuable about information about New Jerusalem specific to why we should be giving right now at this moment. However, I basically have one point to make in this message and I don't want to ruin it. So what we're going to do is just enjoy a preview of this coming kingdom specific to New Jerusalem and then I'll make that one point at the end. So let's just see what our future is if you know Christ. Let's look at New Jerusalem from far away, from close up, and then from inside. First of all, we see a view from far away, chapter 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, this is our far away view. And I hope you get to know this well because you're going to know it well one way or another. It'd be a shame to arrive there and have this be completely unfamiliar to you. But verse 2 and verse 10 are describing the same event. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride for her husband. Heaven and earth are now essentially one. Everything is heaven. We won't speak of believers going to heaven. We're in heaven. We won't speak of believers being on the earth because we're on the earth. Earth is heaven. Heaven is earth. Now, there are several features that we see from far away. We see, first of all, this is a transportable city. It's a single unit. It's coming down out of the heavens to the new earth. Now, given the size of the city and the transportable nature of the city, our current set of laws of physics will not be adequate. They will be insufficient. God will have to do something different. As a matter of fact, the materials that the city are made of would have to be a material of a different sort because no building material on earth could currently withstand its own weight at the size that New Jerusalem would be. So it's a transportable city. It's also a brilliant city. 
Verse 11 says it is having the glory of God. It's radiating with the very glory of the Lord himself. Verse 11 says its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The best understanding we have of jasper is that of a diamond. It is diamond-like in appearance. Chapter 22 is clear that the glory of God lights New Jerusalem. So what do you have here? You have the walls literally being shown through with the glory of God, lighting it up from the inside out. It's a transportable city. It's a brilliant city. Obviously, as we've read here, it's a huge city. It's huge. Verse 16, the city lies four square. It's length the same as, it, as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Now, some would say, well, this is just symbolic. Well, why is it at the end of verse 17 that he says, by the way, human measurements and angel measurements are the same. He's making sure that we know this is literal. It's literal. And somebody might say, well, that's just outlandish. Well, we serve an outlandish God. So I have no problem with this. But it's huge. A stadion, which is singular, is 607 feet. So the stadia, 12,000 stadia, plural, is about 1,400 miles long, wide, and high. This is approximately like sitting on half of the United States, about 2 million square miles, and that's just on one level. Now, many have felt that this describes a pyramid-like structure. That's not what the text says. The text is very clear that the measurements are, are equal. It's much more likely that this is patterned after the place that God met with men, the Holy of Holies, which was a cube. It was patterned after that. Most certainly, it'll have a variety of levels, probably not all the same. But even if each level were just a mile high, that's still 1,400 levels. Now, this would necessitate a significantly larger Earth. There's no problem with that. In 2012, astronomers spotted a planet 13 times larger than Jupiter, meaning that on a volume basis, you could fit 17,173 Earths into what they call this super Jupiter planet. So this is not a problem at all for the Lord. From a distance, New Jerusalem is like a massive diamond coming down out of heaven, lit from the inside out, brilliantly lighting up everything for miles and miles around, certainly. So that's the view from far away. What does it look like if we come a little bit closer? Well, we see some features as we get closer. We see walls. Now, usually a wall is to keep out the enemy. That's the normal use of a wall in the ancient Near East, but there won't be any more enemies, so this is purely to display God's glory. The walls and the gates are testimony that some can enter and most cannot So there is a sense in which it keeps out the enemy. Verse 12 says it was a great high wall. The text doesn't say how high. Verse 17 says it's 217 feet. But it doesn't say if that was the height or the thickness. So which one is it? Well, we could go back and forth here. There's a couple of factors in favor of the thickness of the wall being about 216 feet. Given the size of the city itself, a wall 216 feet high would be a drop in the bucket. 216 feet compared to 1,400 miles high? That's nothing. And also, the the cube is an important shape. This is the exact shape of the Holy of Holies. The the wall wouldn't fit that careful detail by John. It, It would just be like a little line at the bottom that you can barely see. There's nothing majestic about it at that height if it was just 
only 216 feet high. Others say that it is 216 feet high, and we could say it's probably 216 feet thick. Can we say this? Either way, wow, it's going to be big. By the way, these are real measurements. If you want to say something that's symbolic, Scripture must tell you why it is symbolic. It must be ridiculous or it must be unattainable. This is not ridiculous or unattainable. God has made things way bigger than this before. Just go outside at night and look at them. They're all over the place. The reason the city looked like a diamond coming out of the sky is because it is a diamond coming out of the sky. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper. Now I lean hard toward the wall being the full height of the city made of this diamond-like material. John peeks ahead to see the contrast between the wall and the city itself. It seems that the outside of the city is more like a diamond and the inside is more like gold, except the gold is like clear glass. What does that mean? I don't know, but again, wow. It's going to be phenomenal. So there's walls. We get a little bit closer and we see gates. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So there's a welcoming angel at each gate and each gate is named after the 12 tribes of Israel. This is celebrating God's faithfulness and covenant relationship with Israel. All the promises, all the prophecies, all the foretelling of what God's blessing on Israel would be are now, they're all fulfilled If Israel is gone, then these gates are no more than gravestones. But Israel is here. These are named after men and their tribes who are there. In other words, you could go to the gate of Simeon and look around and say, is Simeon around? I'd like to meet him. Because it represents God's faithfulness. And no, Peter is not manning the pearly gates. Just so you know. Verse 13, there are three gates on each side of the city. If the city is 14, if each side is 1,400 miles long and assuming the gates are equidistant, that divides each side into four parts with the gates about 350 miles apart. Now, we're not told how big the gates are. I'm just guessing, though, they're bigger than a two-lane road. The gates themselves might even be miles long. What do they look like? Verse 21, and the gates were 12 pearls each of the gates made of a single pearl. Thus our phrase, the pearly gates. And I've said in the past that they might have the appearance of a pearl, but honestly, the text says, made of a single pearl. Massive, massive gates. Chapter 21, verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. The gates are no longer for protection. It's just the entry and the exit. Uh, to New Jerusalem and perhaps the most popular meeting place of believers as many have arranged here on earth. Many, many believers have said, meet me at the gate of Judah or the gate of Benjamin. And whether or not the Lord will honor that meeting, I, I don't think we have to make meetings here on earth, but apparently it's going to be a popular meeting place. And in ancient times, where did you go to hang out with your friends? You went to the gate. It was a popular place. So there's walls and there's gates and then there's foundations. Verse 14, 
And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The foundation stones, if we can call them stones, are, are also named. These are after the twelve apostles. Why is that? Well, very simple. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus promised, quote, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, that the apostles would rule over the twelve tribes of Israel. That they are the new leadership. The foundations seem to be especially ornate. Every kind of jewel possible is listed in verse 19. And these jewels are roughly parallel to the jewels worn on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel, as described in Exodus 28. But I think even more importantly, a detailed study of these stones, and I wish we had time to do this, but the detailed study of the stones would reveal that they are the, the same colors as the rainbow and in the right order if you start with onyx and go through all of them. So if you can picture foundations or stones, massive stones decorated with jewels to look like a rainbow, we're getting close to understanding what this looks like. That's just the foundation. Our houses have concrete slabs. This has jewels of every kind. Abraham himself looked forward to seeing this city. Hebrews eleven nine and 10 says of Abraham that by faith he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, and coming from someone who spent his life living in tents. That would be a big deal. Well, that's the view from far away and then from up close. What happens when you get inside the gate? What do you see? Well, first of all, John tells us what's not there. There's no temple. Verse 22, just last week, we studied the fact that beginning from the Garden of Eden all the way through the Bible, God has always had a sacred space, a space where mankind can worship him. But since God is dwelling among men per his eternal promise, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. All space has now become sacred space. Faith has become sight. Symbols have become realities. All vehicles of mediation are done away with. And now there is direct communication face to face. What we used to call prayer, now we call conversation. Everything's direct. There's no temple. Everywhere you go is the temple because everywhere you go is the Lord. We also see there's no need of sun or moon. Chapter 21, verse 23 text is very specific there's no temple and no need of sun and moon now perhaps they have gone but that's not what the text says this is the new earth situated in a new heavens in a new universe suddenly or certainly rather there's going to be new stars and a new sun and a new moon who knows maybe there's 20 suns maybe there's a thousand moons we don't know but put it this way the sun and the moon make no contribution to the amount of light shown by the glory of God. It's like looking at a supernova and holding a candle in front of it. It doesn't contribute. There's no temple, there's no need of sun or moon, and there's no night. Chapter 21, verse 25, chapter 22, verse 5. Now, we don't necessarily see this as the permanent eradication of all nighttime. The context here is New Jerusalem, which is lit continually by the glory of God completely. Day and night were part of God's creation and pronounced to be what? Very good. Now, over the course of time, because of sin, 
Nighttime and darkness have become metaphors for evil and wickedness, but nighttime was never inherently part of the curse of sin. And in fact, it's in the night that we can see the glorious creation that declares the majesty and the holiness and the greatness of God. But in the area of New Jerusalem, apparently there is never any darkness. God's glory permeates. There's no temple, there's no need of sun or moon, there's no night. And there's not anything or anyone unclean. Chapter 21, verse 27. And there's nothing accursed. Chapter 22, verse 3. Now this doesn't apply that wicked unbelievers are right outside the gate. It just demonstrates the holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and holy, H-O-L-Y, sinless nature of the new world. It's completely pure. Totally pure. For all the citizens, now access to God is continual. It's unbroken. It is too late for those who rejected God's free offer of salvation in Christ from sin. And in fact, tonight, ironically, I'm preaching from Revelation this morning. I'm preaching from Genesis tonight. And we'll see another last chance. But in New Jerusalem and on New Earth, there's no more curse. Do you understand, if you stop and think about it, that you spend every day of your life trying to mitigate and fight back against the effects of the curse? That's what we spend all of our time doing. You look in the mirror and you say, lost another battle. It's just the way it is. You're going to lose the war too, I hate to tell you. You, you, you buy a new home. We, we bought a new home a couple of years ago. I'm already fixing stuff on it. You buy a new car and it has that new car smell. And two years later, it's just, you're sick of it because it's going down the drain. We spend our life Mitigating the effects of the curse. But now the ground isn't cursed. There's no more sin. There's no more consequences of sin. There's no more death. Think of all of the professions represented in our church. Do you realize most of you will be out of business? Because we make our money mitigating the effects of the curse, right? So John starts with a few things that aren't inside, but then he gives a few small details about what is inside. Chapter 21, verse 21, streets of gold. I won't go through all the old preacher jokes about that. But in our culture, streets have a a very negative connotation. When a felon is let out of prison early, we say he's back on the streets. A homeless person is said to live on the street. We try to avoid being stuck out in the street. Even in Scripture, the 80-plus references to the street is almost always associated with pain, suffering, sickness, death, disease, invasion, you name it. Psalm 144, may there be no cry of distress in our streets. Psalm 18 speaks of the mire in the streets. When Jerusalem was destroyed in 586, Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations of young women and young men lying dead in the streets. In fact, in Zechariah 8, God's promise of the peace that will be in Jerusalem during the the prior millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom that is between this age and the final state. He writes in Zechariah 8, 4 and 5, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. And so that's a rare positive reference, but it's eschatological. It's in times oriented in nature. It's not happening yet. 
Almost every reference to streets in the Bible is laced with pain and suffering and anguish and sin. But in New Jerusalem, aside from the amazing thought that the main street of the city, this is a singular uh, word, meaning it's one main street which leads to the throne of God, aside from the fact that it's made of pure gold like transparent glass, whatever that may mean, think of the implication of streets in heaven access to God paved in gold not in blood hustle and bustle of the glorious new Jerusalem activity people on the street every single one gloriously a perfected saint with whom you can enjoy perfect fellowship these are the avenues to explore the glories of new Jerusalem there will be places to go and people to see what else do we see those written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 21, verse 27. Only those redeemed by Jesus Christ, the sacrificial Lamb of God, will be written in the book. His name will be on our foreheads. Chapter 22, verse 4. We don't know precisely what that means, but it has the connotation of being permanently identified with Christ, that you're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 promises that once we're united with Christ, we shall always be with him wherever he is. What is this name, though, that's inscribed on our foreheads? This is likely the unknown name of Christ. Revelation 19, verse 12 says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And this is what is spoken of in the exaltation of Christ in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Not the name Jesus, but the name that Jesus possesses that nobody knows about. It's the surprise ending name. It's the name that who knows? It could be describing his goodness, his glory, his character, his grace. It could be a name that takes a thousand years to pronounce. How that will be written on our foreheads, I don't know. Really, really small print. Never again do we leave the glorious gathering of the church as we are enjoying right now to be splashed with the mire of a sinful world. And now everywhere you go in the 2,744,000,000 cubic miles of New Jerusalem, all believers, everyone saved by grace, you could, you could just parachute in to any spot in New Jerusalem, go up to somebody and say, tell me how you were saved. And everyone will have a testimony. What else do we see? We see the river of the water of life. Chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Rivers and streams in Scripture are seen as sources of life. They're a source of cleansing. They're often places where mankind encounters God. They're even at times the agent of God's rescue. Now, ancient Israel didn't have much in the way of rivers. The Jordan River was the main river. When we went to Israel a few years ago, it didn't look like a promised land. It looked sort of like an accursed land. But that's going to be different. There are numerous references in the Old Testament to rivers and streams as an image of the hope of coming paradise. Psalm 36, 7 and 8, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. In a desert land where God's people traditionally have dwelt, the river is the sign of blessing. This is a return to Eden. 
the, the original Garden of Eden had a river that divided into four rivers that flowed from the garden. Now, by the way, the river of life is not just a big gushing torrent down Main Street. It waters all of New Jerusalem with side streams, certainly highlighted by lovely landscaping and trees. How do we know this? Psalm 46, verse 4 says, There is a river whose streams, the side streams, make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Isaiah 33, verses 20 and 21 say this as well. What else do we have? Well, the rivers of the waters of life flow from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The throne of God. Now, right now, we are promised access to boldly approach the throne of God in prayer, the throne of grace in prayer. We find mercy. We find grace to help in time of need. By the New Jerusalem, we literally can go to the throne. You don't need mercy. You've already received it. You don't need help because you don't have needs. We can go speak to our God face to face. We can be in awe of the spectacle of the glory of God and his angels. And you might say, well, if there's going to be billions of us there, how are we going to ever get our turn to speak with God? A, I don't know. B, you have eternity. So it doesn't make any difference. The throne of God will be there. What else do we see? We see the tree of life. The tree of life, chapter 22, verse 2, it appears for the first time since the Garden of Eden, except for one brief mention in chapter 2, or Revelation 2, verse 7, that, that the tree of life is currently in current heaven, the paradise of God. Now, it's interesting. The Greek doesn't have the definite article, the tree of life, and so it could arguably, arguably be translated a tree of life on either side of the river. It doesn't make any difference, but it just helps us know that it will be an expanded tree. It yields 12 kinds of fruit, each fruit in its month. And it is for the healing of the nations. The, the tree is related somehow to the maintenance of eternal life. But the main emphasis seems to be on the, the peace of nations for all eternity. Now it does, by the way, answer the question, will we eat in heaven? The answer clearly is yes. But we eat for pleasure, not for survival. And I think this is a good time for us to point out once again that the church has been so harmed, so misled, so deceived, so taken off track by a faulty view of heaven as some sort of ethereal, otherworldly, spooky, misty existence that, is, that it's better to be spiritual but not material. It's made Christians even apprehensive about heaven. They're worried about being bored. I think that's going to be the first thing to go is that worry of boredom or lack of enjoyment. Nothing could be further from the truth. By the way, people say, what if heaven is just one big worship service? You know what that means? That means you're not a Christian if you're worried about that. Because if heaven is one big worship service, what else would we want to do? But we will also eat we will drink we will laugh we will sing we will play these are all things i could prove from scripture if i had time we will love we will fellowship all of the best of god's intention for his original creation will be lived out now in perfected form so we're inside new jerusalem we've seen the things that aren't there things that are there what's happening what's happening inside new jerusalem and one thing that's happening is that people are coming in and out 
Visitors are coming. Verses 24 and 25 of chapter 21 says that the gates aren't closed. Now, we've already said that city gates were for protection from enemies. There's no enemies outside the gate. But each gate is attended by an angel, not a TSA officer. No searching your bags. No security guards. The angels are just there to greet you. And who knows what they'll do? Tell you where to go and tell you what's, what, what the special of the day on level 4011 is. Every citizen of New Earth, completely welcome, access to the throne of the king, completely granted. The gates are so far apart that it's entirely likely that every gate will exit into a completely different terrain. People will be coming in and out for worship, for pleasure, to perform a task, to bring gifts to the Lord, to attend reunions, to go to a banquet, just to enjoy the city. The possibilities are endless, given the fact that Psalm 16 says that at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore, you'll never run out of stuff. You'll never say, well, I've already done that. If you like it, you can do it a billion more times. If you'd rather go on to something else, you can come back in 100,000 years or so. It is life as God intended it to be. Now, just for perspective... We've said that New Jerusalem could potentially have 2 million square miles just on one level. On planet Earth right now, there are currently about 25 million square miles of habitable space. If there is, just for the sake of argument, a level every mile in New Jerusalem, this means that in New Jerusalem alone, this doesn't count the rest of New Earth, by the way. This is just the capital city. In New Jerusalem alone, there would be approximately the habitable surface area of 112 Earths. Now, I'll bet there will be a few things to do. What else will there be? There'll be worship. We'll be worshiping. Chapter 22, verse 3 says that we'll be worshiping. Currently, we have to work at undistracted worship. I got to tell you, it's tough to get your attention sometimes. Because we're, we're, we're just distracted by everything. By the new Jerusalem, our worship will be undistracted. Sheer bliss and pleasure, giving all glory to God and us receiving all ecstasy in the very presence of God himself. Our worship will be as fabulous as new earth itself is going to be. It'll be the highlight and the greatest part of our life there. Picture the greatest, most incredible worship services you've ever attended and you don't even begin to scratch the surface of what heavenly worship will be psalm 150 speaks of worship in heaven on the new earth it says every instrument and every voice will be utilized to worship in psalm 115 imagine a choir of a million imagine an orchestra of a million tens of thousands of dancing saints and flying angels proclaiming the glory of god significantly psalm 150 lists the trumpet first i'm not biased But you know what the trumpet in Scripture always says? It always says, God is here. And that's why we proclaim that with music. Oh, there will be worship. There will be service. Chapter 22, verse 3. The end of the verse says, the ones who are worshiping him are his servants. There's a clear connection here. The word for worship, latruo, in, in Greek is used interchangeably with the, with the concept of service and worship. It goes back and forth. It essentially means the same thing. So our worship and our service is divine service, serving the divine 
causes and the divine lists of things that the Lord would have us to do. And just as we're commanded to strive for right now on new earth and on new Jerusalem, we will serve the Lord as an act of worship. We'll be worshiping, we'll be serving. What else will we be doing? We'll be governing. Chapter 22, verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus taught that part of our heavenly reward will be to be part of the administration of the final state. It's apparently that we'll have some having more responsibility than others. This implies activity and interest and occupation. You will fulfill your God-given purpose as one made in his image as was originally intended in the Garden of Eden. So speaking of the Garden of Eden, basically you can interchange Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21 and 22, to use an old phrase, is just the Garden of Eden on steroids. It's the perfected, upgraded version. It's Earth 2.0. It's as if God says to mankind, welcome back to Eden. Let's pick pick up where we left off. I created you to rule the world in my stead, in my image. Let's do this. And, and we get some valuable information about New Jerusalem specific to why you should be giving right now. What does this information have to do with why should we, we should be giving right now? That New Jerusalem is a transportable city, a brilliant city, a huge city with diamond-like walls and pearl-like gates and jewel-like foundations with no temple, no need of sun or moon because of the glory of God, no night, nothing and no one unclean, with streets of gold, with those written in the Lamb's book of life, with the rivers of the water of life, with the throne of God and of the Lamb, with the tree of life. And we see things happening with visitors and gates that are never closed and worship and service and governing on behalf of our king. I said this message only had one point. Why should we be giving right now? The reason is because you will always be giving to the Lord. That will always be your activity. This is an eternal activity. Verses 24 and 26 of chapter 21 says that the kings of the earth will bring their glory and their honor of the nations to New Jerusalem. Honor, teme. We've gone over this Greek word before. It's often used in the New Testament to speak of money, of wealth, of riches. This is the kings of the earth bringing the glorious wealth and riches and goods of their lands, their products. Now, obviously, this indicates some sort of context or commerce, rather, but it's significant that these goods are brought first to New Jerusalem. It is first a gift to the Lord. Even in the millennial kingdom, we learn in Zechariah 14, verse 14, the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. Also in the millennial kingdom, Isaiah 60, verses 11 and 12 says, your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut. The people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. And if this is the pattern, we can picture great and grand parades with the wealth and the treasure of the nations being marched into New Jerusalem. 
The nations will be like the queen of Sheba in Solomon's day, bringing to the king of Jerusalem gold and spices, precious stones, wood, musical instruments, treasures of all kinds. And where will this wealth come from to be given to King Jesus by the nations? It will be collected. It will be given. And what joy you will have to take the heavenly reward you've received. You ready for this? the heavenly reward you received for giving on earth now and taking some of that reward and giving it to the Lord once again. What joy you will have. Abundance. Giving toward literally a massive nationwide offering to the Lord. But listen, you can only be part of this if you're found in Christ. If you've repented of your sin, which keeps you from fellowship with God, if you've trusted Christ to pay the penalty of your countless offenses against God, can I put it this way? If you want to be part of the glorious kingdom in which you give to the Lord, you must first receive from him. Because as an unbeliever, you have nothing he wants. You have nothing he wants. You must receive salvation in Christ by his grace alone, through your faith alone. You can do nothing to merit salvation. It is the gift of God. You must receive his gift before you can give him one in return then and only then can you be part of this kingdom. When I was 14 years old, I got to do something that is a fond memory to me today. Probably some of you have gotten to do this. I got to march in the Rose Parade on New Year's Day. I still remember we had to get up at 1.30 in the morning. I can stay up till 1.30 in the morning. Easier than I can get up at 1.30. But Nobody had problems getting up. We were filled with adrenaline and excitement. I remember all the bands, the floats, the millions of roses everywhere. Uh, Saw the Grand Marshal actor Jimmy Stewart riding in an open car not 10 feet away from me. And I was just in awe. Absolutely thrilling. Well, the grand parade in the New Jerusalem will eclipse our tiny little parades. Isaiah 60 says that the people, that's you, will bring the wealth of the nations with their kings in procession. Do you understand that you, you personally, people sitting in this room right now, you will march through the gates of pearl. You will march through the diamond walls onto the streets of gold alongside the river of life, underneath the tree of life, to the Lord seated on his throne in procession with all of the people around you bringing your gifts to the Lord. You'll be giving in gratitude for the cross of Christ upon which our Savior suffered, in gratitude for the cross of Christ upon which your sins were obliterated, in gratitude for the cross of Christ where your eternal destiny with God was purchased, in gratitude for the cross of Christ which should have been your cross to pay for your sin, but it became His cross to pay for your sin. Because the offering we offer to the Lord in New Jerusalem is our thanks and our gratitude for the cross. If I could put it this way, we will forever be lifting high the cross. We will forever be giving in gratitude, thanking God for saving us. Now in the moment I'm going to pray, but instead of asking you to worship by remaining still and quiet with heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to worship by getting your joyful generosity initial offering and commitment cards ready. And then we'll sing a hymn together and receive this offering. And ushers, you can come forward as I pray. Our Father, we are thankful to you right now. And as we 
prepare our own little miniature model to give unto the Lord. We are mindful of the gospel. We are mindful of how thankful we are to be. And Lord, we come to you now humbled by the cross, thankful for the cross, thankful for all that you have done for us. And we would pray with the psalmist. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. And tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Oh, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen.